Every, every family in here still has children at home. Some of them are on the way out. Others are just coming in. But you know, even as our families grow older and the kids head out, sometimes it's good to gain just a little bit of perspective on what you're doing, what you've done, what still could be from the effort and the toil that has been put into those children. And sometimes as parents, like in anything else in life, you just need a little jump start. You get a little weary. You just get tired or frustrated. And you just need something to come along and remind you that you're doing okay. There was one of those just this past week. We had the Zakes over on Friday night. And uh, we were telling them that every once in a while you have a circumstance where you're dealing with your da- our daughters and we are disciplining them and we're trying to get them to do what's right and they just won't do what's right. And you have to discipline them time and time again and, and you're just wondering if anything is getting through to them. And then comes a circumstance where you need them to obey. You're out in public and they do it. And they listen. And they do what they're told. And they come when they're told. And they hold hands when they're told. And they wait and let you get their coat on when they're told. And all of a sudden, you just look at your children and you say, it's working. All of that hard work I've put in, something's happening. There's some fruit for my labor. And there's just that little bit of encouragement that you need to get to the next one. And I'm hoping that this sermon will be a little bit like that tonight. It was for me. Because as we looked in Ezekiel last time, I saw a name, and it was a name that was familiar. And so we're going to kind of do a rabbit trail and trace this name and this name's posterity a little bit and learn a few lessons. You recall in Ezekiel 8 verse 11 that there were 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel who were seen by Ezekiel. He had tunneled into the court in the temple and he saw these 70 men in Ezekiel 8 Worshipping false gods. They had scrawled uh, creatures all around the walls of, this, te- uh, of this, this area. They had been worshipping false gods in the temple ground. And on top of that, they had been burning incense to the false gods. Lifting up uh, vain prayers to false gods in the temple complex. Now this number 70 is somewhat significant as a number. God commanded Moses in Exodus 24 verse 1 and in Numbers 11 verse 16 to take 70 men out of the congregation to represent the entire nation of Israel. He said this in Exodus 24 verse 1. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. So this number 70 was a council, or there were 70 men on a council that were to be representatives of the entire nation. If we were to jump into the New Testament, we would read of the Sanhedrin Council. And the Sanhedrin Council was a council made up of 70 men that were to be the council that led Israel. So this number 70 was intended to be a representative of the entire uh, of Israel. I guess we could we could say it this way. In the House of Representatives and in the Senate, we have a body that is intended to represent our country. 
there are representatives from each state, senators from each state, that are intended, if you were to look at the House of Representatives particularly, you would see a representation of the entire United States so that every state has people speaking for them. Well, that's what these 70, that's what this number 70, 70 men gathered together, leaders in Israel, were intended to be. A body of believers that were representing Israel. And so as Ezekiel sees 70 men in this hole in the ground, behind a locked door, worshipping false gods, what God was intending to represent to Ezekiel was the entire nation's leaders, the representatives of the entire people. That which represents the mindset of God's people worshipping false gods. And so the implication, as we mentioned last time, is that all of Israel had strayed from God. We come back to Ezekiel 8 verse 11 and it says, In the midst of them stood a particular man. There was no man mentioned in regard to these 70 except for Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. There are four Jeazaniahs mentioned in the Scriptures and they're only mentioned in four verses. They are not men of biblical prominence by any means. However, when I was reading through this and I noticed the name Shaphan, there was a little tick mark that went in my head. I'd heard that name before. Now, Shaphan is not necessarily a man of great biblical prominence either, but he's a man in Israel that had a pretty distinctive role. And what I'd like to do this evening is go back to Shaphan. Learn a little bit about this man, Shaphan, and learn something about his sons and his grandchildren. And as we learn about Shaphan, and as we learn about his children, and as we learn about his grandchildren, perhaps we can draw a few principles out of Scripture that will encourage us this evening in regard to the heritage that we are building through our children unto the Lord. You're in 2 Kings chapter 22, and that's where we're going to be for the majority of this evening. In 2 Kings 22, we find ourselves coming into the reign of Josiah. Verse 1 tells us that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem. Josiah was a godly king. And according to verse 4, 18 years into his reign, he commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, to hire men to repair the temple of the Lord, which had fallen into disrepair during the wicked reign of Manasseh and Ammon, the kings who had preceded him. Now, we talked about Manasseh at the very beginning of our Ezekiel study that Manasseh was really the reason why he was the one who set the timetable for Israel's captivity, for Judah's captivity. His reign had been so wicked, and he repented at the end of his reign, but his reign had been so wicked, and it was particularly the slaying of innocent children, whereby God said, you have, you have doomed yourself, nation. The, the blood of too many innocent children is on your hand. You are now doomed. The timetable is set. You're going into captivity. But it was after Manasseh and after Ammon that Josiah came into power. A young man. In the 18th year of his reign, he, he tells the people, he tells Hilkiah, hire out men to repair the, the temple of the Lord. 
Now, during Manasseh's reign, Manasseh had erected false gods in the temple. He had placed false gods all over the temple complex. And after his repentance, he had knocked them down, but he'd never repaired the temple of the Lord. And so look with me in verse 8. The scriptures tell us, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he, that Shaphan, read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work that have oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Well, the king Josiah was greatly troubled by the book of the law because if what that book said was true, then Judah was in trouble. If what Shaphan read and what he heard when he read the law of the Lord was true, then great judgment was on its way for Judah. So he sends four men to inquire of the Lord by the prophetess Huldah. And this we see in verses 15 through 20. Notice in verse 14 who went. And then we'll read verses 15 through 20. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Azahiah went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college. And they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. Because they have forsaken me and hath burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall ye say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hath rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. And so because uh, Josiah's heart was tender before the Lord, God says, I will not bring this judgment in, the days, in your days, but I will bring it after your death. And we see, as we see this prophecy being um, unfolded for these four men, that among these four men are Shaphan, as well as Shaphan's son, Ahikam. We'll see that in a little bit. These two men were both vital parts of Josiah's program of reformation in Judah. Shaphan was a godly man. His son Ahikam was a godly man. Now, as we continue to walk through the final chapters in 2 Kings, things will get worse and worse. Josiah dies at the hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt and his son Jehoahaz reigns in his place. Jehoahaz only reigns for three months before he's replaced by Jehoiakim, one of Josiah's other children. Jehoiakim was not a good king either, but he reigned eight years under the thumb of Egypt and then Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon for the final three years 
of his reign before he died in an attempt to rebel against the king of Babylon. Now, following Jehoiakim's death, his son Jehoiachin reigned in his place, but only for three months before the captivity. After these three months, Babylon would come into Jerusalem and would take many in the city. And one of those that was taken in that captivity, this would have been the captivity of 597 BC, was Ezekiel. This Jehoiachin is the same king that's mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 1, whose years of captivity are the very basis for Ezekiel's reckoning. Consider, again, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the 4th month, in the 5th day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God in the 5th day of the month, which was the 5th year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. And so I'm just trying to put a few of these pieces together for you. You had Josiah, then you had a few kings that reigned for just a few years. Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years in total. After him, only three months, and then this captivity began. Ezekiel went out in this captivity. Jehoiakim was already in Babylon at the time, and that is the reckoning that we see. Now turn with me to 2 Kings 25, just a few chapters forward. The next time, Shaphan and his family kind of fall off the map as it focuses on the kings. And the next time we see this man and his family, we see them in 2 Kings 25, verse 22. Following Jehoiachin, a man named Zedekiah ruled in Judah. And notice what we see in, in chapter 25, verse 22. And as for the people that remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, even over them he made Gedaliah, the son of who? Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, ruler. So Zedekiah reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He was a wicked man. He rebelled against Babylon. At the end of his time, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came into the city and he destroyed it. He killed Zedekiah's sons. He poked out Zedekiah's eyes. He carried him to Babylon blind. And thus the promise of Ezekiel that we saw last time that this king would live in Babylon but never see Babylon came to pass. We talked about that last time. Nebuchadnezzar at that time burned the temple of the Lord, took the wealth of the land, and he left a very small remnant in the land to keep the fields, to keep the beasts at bay so that the beasts didn't come in and overrun the land and all of those things. And in verse 22, we see that this man, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was made ruler, governor over the remnant. So here it is, Shaphan's grandson is now a governor under Babylon in the land of Judah. Well, what else can we learn about this very interesting family? Well, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was a friend of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 26, 24, we see that he was a friend of the prophet. He helped Shaphan perform the reforms of godliness in the days of King Josiah, but he also saved Jeremiah the prophet from the hand of the people. He literally saved Jeremiah from death. That is Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. We talked about Gedaliah a little bit, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, being a, a man that was so trusted by Babylon that he was made governor of the land of Judah. Throughout Jeremiah's ministry, he preached that the nation of Israel should not resist Babylon. You recall that from Jeremiah? Jeremiah would tell the people, don't resist Babylon. Babylon is coming. The captivity is at hand. So don't try to resist. 
just just allow them in. Take take their rulership over you for this time. It's going to be 70 years of captivity. Trust God's faithfulness to bring you back to the land. This is the best option for you. Well, the people didn't like that. The king didn't like that. But, you know, Gedaliah and Ahakam allowed Jeremiah to stay with them at their house, was a good friend to Jeremiah during this difficult time. And it was probably due to this particular attitude toward Babylon of Jeremiah's that Gedaliah was made a ruler, a governor in the land. We see another son of Shaphan. His name is Elasa. Elasa is the son of Shaphan. And in Jeremiah 29 verse 3, Jeremiah entrusts Elasa with a message to the captive remnant. It's quite possible that as Ezekiel was sitting by the river Kibar, unable to speak, doing all his crazy things, lying on his side for a long time and kicking over uh, models of Jerusalem and, and eating... Um, nasty bread and all of those things, it's quite possible that one day Ezekiel saw Elasa, the son of Shaphan, coming over the horizon with a message from Jeremiah from Jerusalem to the remnant that was in captivity. This family was a great friend of the prophet Jeremiah. This family was a great friend of the Lord. We see another son of Shaphan. See how many sons did he have? Enough. Gemariah, the son of Shaphan. In Jeremiah 36, verse 25, Gemariah petitioned the king not to burn the roll which Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah writes a roll. He's in prison. He gives it to his, his, his servant. His servant runs to the people, reads it before the people, and Shaphan and his family say, the king needs to hear this. So they go before the king and they read the scroll before the king and the king says, give me that scroll. And he lights it on fire. And it was Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, that was among the men saying, please don't burn this. This is the word of the Lord. This family loved the Lord. Micaiah, the grandson of Shaphan, the son of Gemariah. In Jeremiah 36, verses 11 through 13, Micaiah supports his father and Jeremiah in Gemariah's desire to have this scroll not be burned. What am I showing you here? I'm showing you generations of men that loved and served the Lord. We see Shaphan. We see Shaphan's sons. And we see Shaphan's grandsons supporting a prophet that was hated in Israel. Uh, Supporting the Lord when it wasn't popular to support the Lord. Doing what was right when it wasn't popular to do what was right. Leading, really, leaders in Israel. Even so much that Gedaliah became a governor under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see one more child of Shaphan. And his name is Jeazaniah. Seen only once in Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 11, a prominent man in Israel, one of the 70 leaders seen in a vision of Ezekiel by the river Kibar worshiping false gods on the temple ground. What a contrast to the rest of Shaphan's family. How stunning must it have been for Ezekiel? Why is it that this one name is mentioned of the 70? Because everyone knew that Shaphan's family was a family that followed the Lord. And here was this one child. We've seen four children of Shaphan. One child. And he still looks like he loves the Lord. He still looks like he's doing what's right. But he's one of those 70 in a hole behind a door 
in the temple complex, scrawling creatures on the walls and burning incense to false gods. And that's the only thing we know about Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Let's apply what we've learned in as meaningful a way as possible this evening. We're going to apply it through three points. Point number one, a godly heritage is not an accident. A godly heritage is not an accident. Point number two this evening, a godly family can make a noticeable difference. And point number three, godly heritage does not always mean a godly person. A godly heritage does not always mean a godly person. Let's talk about these points briefly this evening. We'll probably be finished a bit early tonight. First, the godly heritage is not an accident. What a blessing it was that Shaphan got to be the beginning of three generations of influential men in Israel that feared and served the Lord. And what we see about this service is that he and his sons served God together. When Shaphan found the scroll in the temple of the Lord, he brought it before the king. And as the king said, go talk to someone and see if this is true, Shaphan went, Hilkiah went, but Shaphan's son Ahakam came too. Shaphan said, son, let me bring you along as we inquire of the Lord. Shaphan's son got to hear the prophetess say, this will surely come to pass. Shaphan Got to, son got to hear the law of God as it was read. Shaphan didn't just say, okay, son, go play. I've got work to do now. He said, son, come listen as the Lord speaks. Come listen. Let's learn of God together. When Gemariah besought the king not to burn the scroll that Jeremiah had written, Gemariah wasn't alone. His son, Micaiah, was there supporting his father and serving the Lord right along with him. And we see that godly heritage is not an accident. We see that godly heritage was Shaphan passing down the teachings of the Lord to his son. And Shaphan's children passing down the teachings of the Lord to their children. We see not just father, son, and grandson, but father to son to grandson. You can trace it in the Scriptures. This family was busy serving the Lord, but this family was busy serving the Lord together. Together. Shaphan didn't just spend time in his bedroom on his knees praying that his sons and praying that his grandsons would turn out okay. Shaphan had his children as a part of his ministry. Shaphan showed his children how to serve the Lord by serving the Lord himself and by bringing them along. Shaphan made God real to them by being real with God. A godly heritage is not an accident. And as we, as families in this church, are serving the Lord, let's renew in our hearts the determination that we'll not just tell our children to serve the Lord, but we'll show them how to serve the Lord and we will serve the Lord together. A godly heritage is not an accident. Proverbs 22, verse 6 tells us this. It's a familiar verse. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, the verse is a principle. It's not a promise. And we'll see that in our final warning. But the principle is both strong and pointed. That for a child to be rooted and grounded in the faith, there must be genuine 
training. Children must see that our faith is real to be effectual and to be passionate. If your faith is a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do sort of a faith, you risk losing your children. If your faith is put into a box so that you're a Christian on Sundays and maybe Tuesday nights and then maybe every once in a while outside of that, but then other times you don't act much like a Christian at all, your children will see that and you might just lose your children. And if we want a godly heritage, if we want to see our children become godly children and our grandchildren become godly grandchildren, it means that we need to take it upon ourselves to live out Christian lives among them. We need to train them. Not the church. The church can be a part of it. But you. It means we must talk with them. Not our friends or pastors or youth pastors giving them all of the, the guidance that they need. We need to be guides. We need to be leaders. We need to be showing them the way that they should go. And that's part of the structure that we have here. That's part of why we do what we do. Because it is our responsibility, parents, to guide our children, to show our children the way that they should go. It means we need to raise them with a vision for what we want them to become. It means we need to train them in consistency to that framework. You don't have to choose your child's profession. You don't have to choose your child's spouse. But you know what? You should raise them having in your mind the kind of a person you want them to become. As a pastor of a church... I lead this church with a vision. The church doesn't go very far if you don't have a vision for where you want the church to go. As a matter of fact, in January, we'll be talking about the vision of the church. And we'll be helping form the vision together of the church in the direction we want to go as a church. But see, without a vision, the scriptures tell us, in fact, where there is no vision, the people perish. When you have a vision, when you have a direction you want you want a church to go or a family to go, then the best part about having that vision is everything that you do, you can weigh against that vision and say, is what I'm doing consistent with my vision for where I want my children to be? Do you have a vision for where you want your children to be? For the kind of people you want them to be? Do you want them to be people that spend the rest of their lives uh, studying the Word of God and knowing the Word of God? I hope so. Well, if you have that vision for them when they're 18 and 20 and 25 and 35 and 45, what are you doing today to foster that vision? Do you want them to memorize Scripture for the rest of their lives? Well, I hope so. If you want them to still be memorizing Scripture at age 35 and 45 and 55, what are you doing today to build into them those things that will help them reap that vision that you have for them? If you want your children to grow up to be pure, and to wait, unusually in our culture, for marriage before um, they get into sexual relations or before they, they um, are, are engaging in physical contact with the opposite sex. What are you doing today to bring about in their lives the realization of that vision five years down the road, ten years down the road, fifteen years down the road? Do you have a vision Are you training up your children? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says this. Another very familiar passage. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This speaks about how to bring up your children. We don't raise our children in a manner that will frustrate their ability to please us or to please God. We don't manipulate our children into obedience. We're firm, we're consistent, we're loving, and they respond 
in turn. We train them. We warn them. We discipline them. We guide them. And with every lesson, we bring them back to God's love, to God's holiness, to God's long-suffering, to God's mercy, to God's forgiveness. And we bring them back to the joy that it is to serve God. Don't allow your children to look at other children who aren't serving the Lord and wish that they were them. Don't paint such a picture of Christianity that your children say, I can't wait to get out of the house and to no longer have to do all that Christian stuff. Now, if they have the Holy Spirit of God in them, then certainly there's going to be that aspect as well. But serving the Lord is a joy. Serving the Lord is a privilege. Serving the Lord is a tremendous opportunity to see God working in the world. Are you instilling that in your children? Don't just hope that your children will turn out okay. Hope that somebody will have those conversations with them. Hope that somebody will pull them inside and say, hey, you need to shape up. Now, I know that sometimes kids don't want to hear what parents have to say. And somebody else does need to be the one to pull the kid aside and smack him over the head and say, hey, you need to shape up. And that's where pastors and others in the church and mentors and, and elders and those sorts of things come in. But make a point of being a part of that which your children will look back on and say, yes, I was formed into who God wanted me to be and my parents were a part of that. They, they didn't just sit passively. They didn't even just pray. They were chiseling me. My parents were a part of chiseling me into the silhouette of godliness that God wanted me to be. Be that. Those of you who are getting to that age where you, you would desire to be married or you're thinking toward your future, start thinking toward what you are, what you desire to be, and what you would desire your children to be, and start building into your life those habits so that you have those habits that you can start building into your children's lives one day. Children, you say, I'm not even there yet. I'm nowhere near there. Don't resist the vision that your parents have for you as they chisel you into that silhouette of godliness that they would have you to be. They don't know what you're going to become. We might have young men in this room that will one day be behind the pulpit preaching. We might have young men in this room that will one day be on the mission field. We might have young ladies in this room that will one day be on the mission field. Or we might have a bunch of secular jobs in this room. We might have postal workers and we might have the engineers and we might have the mechanics. And yet, as our parents look toward the future, not knowing what we will become, not knowing what God will do through you, your parents would desire to form in you those elements of godliness. Don't resist that. Don't be afraid to go to them. Don't be afraid to let them into your spiritual needs, to your spiritual concerns. You know, growing up, I was one of those that didn't want to go to my parents with my spiritual needs and my spiritual concerns. And I look back and I sit and I think about all of the ways that I, all of the lessons that I could have learned the easy way if I'd have just gone to my parents instead of bottling up all of my spiritual problems inside and just not worrying about them or not getting them solved or trying to solve them on my own. When you have the accountability of your parents, when you have the wisdom of your parents, I call my dad quite regularly now and ask for his wisdom. I wish I'd have done it when I was in high school. Didn't even have to call him. I could have gone to the room. What a loss 
of those years where I could have been seeking out two godly parents who wanted me to become a godly man. A godly heritage is not an accident. Second, a godly family can make a noticeable difference. A godly family can make a noticeable difference. The family of Shaphan. You think about his sons, you think about his grandsons. These men had a real impact on society in Jerusalem. Within their sphere, God used them to protect Jeremiah the prophet. To convince a king. To be the voice of reason in the midst of rebellion. To send the letters of the prophet to the remnant in Babylon. And it wasn't just Shaphan. It wasn't just a couple of grandchildren of a godly man kind of hanging on to granddad's coattails and looking like a godly person when in fact they're not godly themselves. These were men that loved the Lord. And they made an impact in their surroundings. They made an impact in their society. Psalm 127 speaks to this reality and the possibility of this in our family and in our lives. Verses 3-5, through Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Children in the hands of the godly man, the psalm says, is like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. With these children, he is able to strike into the lives of others. He's able to shoot them out and to impact others that are at a great distance from them through His children. You know, maybe as a father, you wish you had a little greater impact on society. You're doing your part. You're doing what you can. But you just kind of wish there was a little bit more. You have a small sphere of influence. You're faithful in that sphere. But you know, if you have children, those children are an opportunity for you to have a greater impact. Those children are an opportunity for you to to balloon your sphere of influence because as you raise your children to be godly and your children go out from you and have families, godly families, and they have godly families, all of a sudden your influence is reaching two generations or three generations or four generations and it's not just reaching one town, it's reaching two towns or three towns or four towns. It's reaching that Christian college. It's reaching that other church. It's reaching out. And it's your children that are doing it. But you you had the privilege of planting the seed, of being a part of that influence. When your children grow to serve the Lord, you can rejoice that by God's grace, He has used you to impact society through your children in a way that you never could have done alone. Your children will go out from you And they will win souls to Christ. And they will support missionaries. And they will serve in churches. And the Scriptures tell us that the man who finds his children to be the heritage of the Lord is a happy man. And that that man will not be ashamed. Children are a heritage from the Lord. I trust that you are raising your children to be impacting in society. And I trust that you are encouraging your children to raise their children to have an impact on society for God.
of course. Because that's one of the privileges of parenting. Is to watch our children not just walk and have a personal relationship with the Lord. But to watch them impact others to have a better relationship with the Lord. We're going to look at one more point today. Our third and final point. Godly heritage does not always mean a godly person. A godly heritage does not always mean a godly person. Parents, you're doing what you can. I trust you're doing your best to raise your children to love and to fear and to serve the Lord. I trust that you've shown them the gospel and that many of them have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you have guided them and encouraged them on their path to serve the Lord and to do what is right. But they're still them. And your children are going to make their own decisions. Shaphan was a good man. It's clear he was a godly man. It's clear he was a good father. Yet Ezekiel 8 verse 11 reminds us that a godly heritage, a godly man, and a godly father does not by default mean godly children. And that is the Scripture's warning this evening. When my wife and I were at Christian college, what we found is that the most unique group of people on campus were what we called the PKs and the MKs, the preacher's kids and the missionary's kids. They were the most mixed bag on campus. Some of them were very mature. They loved God. They rejoiced that they were able to have a multi-generational ministry and service to the King of Kings. But there were also many of these children who were rotten to the core. I mean, you're not even talking about a rebellious streak. You're talking about rotten to the core. Their churches didn't know it. Their families probably didn't even know it. But they were wicked. And they were rebellious. One of the greatest fears that has come into my heart as a pastor is what the pastorate will do to the impact of my children. The church will hold them up as perhaps being something special, maybe needing to be a little bit better than your average kid because they're the pastor's kid. And if my wife and I aren't careful, we'll run the risk of expecting so much that they're forced to fake it in order that they can live up to the expectations of their parents or their church or whatever. They'll fake godliness, they'll fake piety, they'll fake virtue to please others while on the inside they're rotting because they have no guidance, because they've never made those decisions for themselves, because they're so busy trying to be something that they're not that they can't figure out what they are and what they need to be. God save us from being parents who are content to simply look at the external actions of our children. God save us from being the kind of parents that are too afraid to ask our children, how are you doing spiritually? God save us from being the type of of parents that are so afraid that we might not like what we have to hear that we're afraid to ask our children, what has God showed you lately? Have you been in your Bible? When they do wrong, instead of just correcting them, asking them, why did you do that? What was your motivation for doing that? is, Is this... Not just a one-time thing. Is there a track record of sin in your life that, that I can help you get under control? Your child has a lying problem. 
don't just settle for dealing with the problem of lying each time it happens. Okay, you lied to me, go to your room. Okay, you lied to me, go to your room or, or spankings or whatever it might be. Don't just settle for that. When you start seeing a trend in your child's life, dig. Dig to the root of that trend and help your child root it out. Children don't have the wisdom all the time to look into the Word of God and to dig this stuff out. But I can guarantee you how much easier will it be for them to get it out of their lives early than when they're 20 or 25 years old and now they're having to dig themselves out of that lying problem. Ask your children personal spiritual questions. Now, the children's responses, the amount that they're honest with you, you, you don't dictate all of that. But if we count it sufficient that our children externally are doing pretty good, that they kind of fall in line, you might just lose one. Many of you, I believe everyone here, um, has heard the testimony, maybe not the Schmitz, my testimony of my high school years. I was the best kid in the youth group, a fairly large youth group, the best kid on the outside, probably the worst kid on the inside. The most well-behaved kid possible because I loved the Lord and I wanted to do what was right, but you know what? I didn't do what was right. I didn't have the spiritual maturity to see what my actions would, would, would do, what, how it would come to fruition. And you know, if I had had someone, parent or mentor or pastor, ever pull me aside and say, you know what? How are you doing on the inside? Not how are you doing on the outside. I see you're doing pretty good there. How are you doing on the inside? What a difference it might have made. You say, pastor, you, you're a pastor. <laughs> what do you mean what a difference it might have made? Yeah. You know, I turned out okay. I'm not tooting my own horn. I, maybe I am. I don't know. But... The, the Lord spared me. But it took till my sophomore year in college. Why couldn't it have started 10 years earlier? Why couldn't I have had 10 more years of growth? Why couldn't I have had 10 more years of walking with the Lord in fellowship instead of in selfishness? How much farther along could I have been in my understanding of the Scriptures? How much more, more Scripture would have been hidden in my mind and in my heart? How many things could I have looked back on with joy instead of regret? And it's not because I was a bad kid on the outside. But it's because I had problems on the inside. I could have been lost. I, I, I should have been. Lost, not, not lost unsaved. I, I'm a believer. I've been a believer um, since I was very young and I know that to be sure. But I could have been one of those lukewarm for the rest of my days Christians were it not for the grace of God. And the grace of God covers our failings as parents. We know that. But what are you doing to ensure that your godly heritage is not just one of your children or two of your children or three of your children, but all of your children. Are you digging? Are you pulling up those roots of sin 
But do also remember that your children are going to make their own decisions. And that you can guide and you can lead and you can help to whatever degree they will allow you to. But at the end of the day, what's happening in here is between them and God. And you can do your best to live a life that reflects godliness so that they look at you and they say, yes, I want what my parents have. And you can, you can do your best to dig down and to help them to gain perspective on what they ought to be. But let us never feel like when a child departs from the Lord that you have failed or that we have failed. Because that's not necessarily it. Each child is going to make choices. Children in this room, you're making choices every day. And you know, you might be too young. Even some of you that are in your teen years, you might be too young to fully grasp, comprehend the consequences of the choices you're making today. But your parents might understand the consequences of the choices you're making today a little better than you. I'm, I'm pretty sure they do. You're struggling. A sin in your life. You don't want anyone to know about it. Let your parents know about it. Ask them to help you. Get it taken care of early. While you're young. While it's easy. While you don't have the responsibilities of a house or, or a family or a church or whatever it might be, or a mission field, and you're trying to take care of the sin in your life while at the same time simultaneously guiding the spiritual lives of others, don't let it get there. Because you could become one of those who has a godly father and a godly grandfather and godly uncles and godly cousins and you've walked away. And you're with 70 in Israel Worshipping idols on the temple ground of Jehovah God. And no one would know it. But your heart is far from the Lord. Let's pray.